Hello, boys and girls. This is Dr. John, and welcome once again to the Children's Story Hour. I've got Auntie Sue with me. Hello, Auntie Sue. Hello, Dr. John. You know, a lot of these stories are about mission stories, and we had an exciting time when we lived in the mission field. Can you just tell the boys and girls where we lived? We lived in Fiji. And before I met you, when I was a little boy, I lived in the country of Malaya, which is now called Malaysia. And I told you before about treading on a hose that I thought was a snake. And the reason I was so worried was the very night that we first arrived there, my daddy opened the back door and he put his foot onto the back of a hammer dryer, a king cobra. And, you know, he was so frightened we were going to leave the country, but he opened his Bible and he read a text he'd never read before. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions, and nothing will hurt you. And we stayed there for 12 years. It was such an exciting time. And all of these stories are very, very exciting. Boys and girls, we love getting messages from you. Auntie Sue, can you give us some details of how to contact us? Yes, you can write to us at Children's Story Hour, 3ABN Australia Radio, PO Box 752, Morissette 2264, New South Wales, Australia. Or email at radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. You can also check us out at the radio page on the 3ABN Australia website. The web address is www.3abnaustralia.org.au. Auntie Sue, would you pray for us before we have today's stories? Yes. Loving Father in heaven, we thank you that we have this time to listen to stories about people who have been blessed by you and saved by you. And I know there are messages in there for each and every one of the boys and girls. Now we thank you, dear Lord, and please bless us as we listen. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you, Auntie Sue. Now, boys and girls, as you have been listening to these stories... And we've been getting letters from you about which story you like the most. You can also draw pictures. I'd love it if you could draw a picture of a story that you found particularly exciting. And if you draw that, we'll put them on the walls all around 3ABM and we'll read your name or we'll read your letters. It is something really to look forward to. So boys and girls, sit down, gather around the radio and here are some more stories from the Children's Story Hour. Hi, girls and boys. This is Uncle Alan, and today's story is called Harry and the Haystack. Bye, Mum, Harry called as he hurried out of the house after lunch. I'm going to play ball with John over in the big field. Have a good time, said his mother, and be back before dark. Right, answered Harry, and closed the door. A moment later, his mother opened it. 
Don't forget what Father said about the haystack, she called. It's dangerous and might fall down any minute, so don't play on it. All right, Mum, don't worry. Cheers. And Harry was off again. But when he and John had played ball long enough, they began to look for something else to do. They played tag, but not for long. Tag is no fun when there are only two to play. Next, John and Harry went into the field beyond the barn. Here, by shouting toward the barn, they could hear their voices echo, and this passed the time for a while, but soon they were bored. The boys began looking at the big haystack. Like most haystacks, it was made up of straw left over from the harvest. Straw is used as bedding for the cows in the winter. On modern farms, the straw is put into bales before it was stacked. When this story took place, however, haystacks were just huge heaps of straw. In windy weather, they had to be held down by ropes and big sheets of waterproof canvas. The haystack Harry and John were looking at was just dry straw, with no ropes and no canvas. Instead, the farm workers had given it a roof, like a thatched cottage. It looks like a big, friendly monster, said John. No, said Harry, it looks like a little cottage. The boys moved closer to it. Forget what it looks like, said John. Let's climb it. Let's climb the haystack. We could slide off onto that pile of hay at the bottom. Should be fun. Yes, let's, said Harry. But then he remembered. There was a pause. Harry looked worried. Dad said the big stack is dangerous, Harry said. In fact, he said it might fall down, he added. It was made about a year ago, and the dry straw under the roof may move if we climb on top. What rot, said John. It's a big, friendly monster. How could it possibly be dangerous? And what harm would it do if it did fall down? Straw is very light. It's not going to break bones or anything. Well, OK, said Harry, not quite sure. Let's play on it and see what happens. So they ran to the haystack and began to play. There was a ladder standing against one side of it, so they climbed up to the ridge of the stack, then slid over the side until they fell gently down to the pile of hay at the bottom. It was great fun. Up they climbed and down they slid, over and over again. Nothing happened. The haystack didn't fall. There you are, said John, as they rested. I told you, there isn't any danger at all. You're right, said Harry. But I wonder what Dad meant when he said it was dangerous. Oh, nothing, said John. Old folks just like to make a fuss. I'm feeling a bit tired, said Harry. How about lying down for a while on the hay? You can. I don't want to, said John. I'll wander round a bit while you take a nap. Harry lay down in the straw and began to snooze. The sun was warm. How comfortable it was. He stretched out this way and that, and then, before he knew it, he was asleep. Ten minutes later, a big section of the haystack began to move. Disturbed by the boys sliding down, it slowly shifted forward, inch by inch, inch by inch. Then it fell. There was no noise, no sound of breaking or of falling. 
It just glided down like an avalanche, right on top of Harry. He woke up with a start. What had happened to the sun? It was pitch dark. Harry felt the pressure of the straw. He began to realise what had happened and he became terribly frightened. He tried to say, straw is heavy, but when he opened his mouth it was soon filled with dust. Harry was panicking now. He couldn't breathe. He tried to cry out, but even more straw and straw dust filled his mouth, his nose, his eyes. Frantic with fright, he tried to move, but he couldn't. There was an awful feeling in the pit of his stomach. He was imprisoned. He imagined the headline in tomorrow's newspaper, Boy Buried Alive in Haystack. Fortunately, John was not far away. Coming back to see if Harry was awake, he saw what had happened, and he became frantic with fright too. Help! Help! he cried. The haystack's fallen on Harry. Quick! Help! Then he rushed to the great heap of straw and began throwing it aside as fast as he could. But even as he worked, more straw fell, and it seemed as though his task was hopeless. Hearing John's cries, two farm workers ran over to see what was the matter. Hurry, hurry, cried John. Harry's buried under there. He'll suffocate if we don't get him out soon. How they worked, throwing the straw aside. Pretty soon they found Harry and dragged him out. He was unconscious, but they carried him to the house and brought him around. Didn't I say those boys were not to play on the haystack? demanded Father, rushing in from his work to find out what had happened. Shh, said Mother. He's had a bad shock, but he's getting over it. Don't say anything just now. I'm sure he must have learned his lesson. He had. Indeed, Harry was so thankful that his life had been spared that he made up his mind never to disobey again. Even John had to agree that maybe the old folks knew best after all. Boys and girls, it's Auntie Cecily back again, and we're going to read another chapter from my book, Libby and His Bush Friends. Today we're going to read chapter 15, Libby Fails to Come Home. Libby remained in good health for quite some time following his treatment with the strawberry-flavoured medicine. He was now almost two years of age, and it was not uncommon for him to stay away for a night or two. Many possums die at a young age from predators, infected wounds or disease, so Libby was doing well. Five days had passed and Libby had not come home. I think I'll look for Libby and see how he's doing, I said to Barry as I was going out the back door early one Monday morning. He's bound to be sleeping somewhere close by, Barry replied. I looked in all the usual places then I tried the garage. I stepped up onto a stool to look into the box on top of the tall cupboard. Oh, Libby, I gasped. Libby lay in his box limp. 
He had the same dehydrated appearance as at his last illness. I ran and fetched Barry. We used a plastic eyedropper to try to get some water into Libby, but it was no use. The water just ran back out of his mouth. This looks serious, said Barry. We'd better take him to Dr. Farmer straight away. I lifted him gently out of the box and cradled him in a towel. His eyes were lifeless and he was too weak to lift his head to greet me. The drive to Dr. Farmer's surgery seemed to take forever. When we arrived at the surgery, we were ushered into the examination room without delay. Dr. Farmer examined Libby and concluded, he may have a recurrence of the same infection that he had previously. Then he added, in its most serious form, it can kill animals like Libby. Dr. Farmer went on, Libby looks very dehydrated. We will have to get fluid into him immediately if we're going to save his life. Getting fluid into Libby was not an easy task. He wasn't able to drink. Libby's veins were very narrow because of his small size, so Dr Farmer could not insert a needle into them and inject the urgently needed fluid directly into his bloodstream. However, Dr Farmer had another way of getting around the problem. Gently pinching and lifting the skin on Libby's back between his thumb and fingers, he inserted a needle under the skin. Libby was so sick he barely flinched as the needle penetrated his skin. I've placed this needle under Libby's skin so I can slowly inject him with the fluid he needs. His body will absorb the sack of fluid gradually, Dr Farmer explained. He will look like he has a golf ball under his skin for a few hours. That is only the bulge created by the injected fluid. The lump will flatten out as his body takes up the fluid. We thanked Dr Farmer for doing all he could to keep Libby alive and left the surgery for work. After work, Barry and I returned to the surgery to see how Libby was doing. While he had not improved noticeably, his condition had not worsened. We were very thankful for that. As the Bible says, in everything give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18 first part. You will need to leave Libby here overnight. He is still a very sick possum, but we will do all that we can, Dr. Farmer reassured. That night the house seemed very quiet and empty without Libby's presence and little demands for attention. Despite Dr. Farmer's treatment, Libby's condition remained much the same the following day. On the third day, I was anxious to see Libby, so I drove to the veterinary surgery during my lunch hour. Dr. Farmer invited me into the room where he was working. There were several rows of cages against one wall. As I looked for Libby, I noticed a dog with a plaster cast on one of his legs. Another dog looked eagerly at me. Then I caught sight of Libby. He was resting in one of the higher cages, away from the other animals. Just then, Dr. Farmer called out cheerily from the other side of the large operating room. 
Would you like to hold Libby? Could I, I said. That would be great. My assistant will get him out of his cage and bring him to you, he offered. The obliging veterinary assistant directed me to a chair. You can sit down here if you like. It will be easier for you to rest Libby on your lap. Thank you, I replied. May I try feeding Libby some pawpaw, I asked. Sure. It seems as though the medicine is beginning to work, but he has not lapped any water or eaten any food yet. Until he eats and drinks again, he will remain in a critical condition, cautioned Dr. Farmer. Libby didn't move. Stroking his soft fur, I said, Libby, we're doing all we can to help you get better. Now you've got to do your bit. Please make a big effort and eat some fruit. I opened a plastic container I had in my bag. I took out a piece of pawpaw and offered it to him, but there was no response. You've got to eat, Libby, I urged, squishing a piece of pawpaw against his closed mouth. It's the only way you're going to get healthy again. Libby felt the mess I'd made around his mouth and chin. He instinctively poked his tongue out to lick himself clean. Good boy, I said, greatly encouraged by his response. I squished some more pawpaw onto his mouth. He slowly and methodically licked the bits of fruit around his mouth. While his mouth was slightly ajar, I quickly put another piece between his teeth. Please try to eat, I implored. Libby swallowed the morsel. I repeated this procedure several times. Each time he swallowed this tiny piece of fruit. Then he accepted a bigger piece and started to chew. He's accepting the pawpaw, I called triumphantly to the vet. Wonderful, he called back from the other side of the operating room. Keep trying to give him as much as he can take. So I continued to feed Libby morsels of food joyful that he had turned the corner. The crisis had passed. It would not be long and Libby would be home again. Boys and girls, it's story time and this is Uncle Gordon to bring you another story from the South Pacific Islands. In the Bible there's some very precious promises and I'd like to turn your attention to a couple of them found in Deuteronomy 28. Verse 10 says, And all the people of the earth shall see that thou art called of the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of thee. Then in verse 13 it says, And the Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail. That's what the Lord wants us to be. He wants us to be the leaders in his work being witnessed through his power. When I was in Honiara, the Queen Elizabeth of England was visiting the South Pacific with her husband and family on the Britannica, which was her yacht. Now it was in the Solomons. We were living at the Solomons at that time, and we were invited as the head of the church there in that, in that area to be present at a function on the Britannica to meet the Queen, the Duke of Edinburgh, and her, her entourage. 
it was a tremendous privilege because only 26 of us were, were chosen from out of the whole of the population of Solomon Islands. So you can imagine we got dressed in our very best. My wife went out and bought a new hat because hats were required and I had to have a bow tie. And uh, so we were all prepared and on that Wednesday evening we were to uh, go out and meet the Queen. We'd actually seen them during the week in, as they'd visit round. It's been a sports day for the young people at the Lausantama in Honiara, and the Duke of Edinburgh and Queen had been there. But now we were to meet them face to face. What a thrill that was. And so uh, we waited at the wharf, and then the, the barge came, one from the Britannica. It was a beautiful barge. It had uh, leather seats and very well kept, and everyone was dressed in their sailors' uniforms, and we were ushered aboard this barge and taken across, climbed the stairs up onto the deck of the Britannica, and uh, we had to hand over our invitation card. And we were announced by a man, a stout man there with a big voice, and he cries out loud, calling out our name, and he introduces us to the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh. And as we look into the room where he's pointing, there stands the Queen in her beautiful gown and her tiara on her head, flashing as the lights caught the, caught the diamonds there. And as a young man, I'd always admired this uh, young lady, but now she, I was to meet her face to face. I one time as a young boy at the age of nine decided that she was going to be my bride, but somehow I missed out. But now I was to meet her. And as I walk forward, I put my hand forward to meet her hand, which was pushed forward. I shook her hand, and what a beautiful experience that was. She greeted me and by name, and... Uh, we passed a few words. Then I moved on to the Duke of Edinburgh, and uh, he shook my hand and he said, oh, Pastor Lee, you're the head of the Seventh Adventist Church here. He said, I want to talk to you afterwards. And with that, I had to move on, and I met Princess Anne. And then there was the Duke of Edinburgh and the ladies-in-waiting. And then we moved into a hall, and this is where everyone was to meet and mingle with the uh, Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh and the entourage. We were not sitting, we were just milling around and drinks were offered to all. Some had some drinks and I had an orange drink along with my wife. And I was just waiting for the Duke to indicate uh, his uh, intention to come and talk with me because you don't push your way in. And so I was keeping my eye where he was and he was down the other end of the hall. And uh, I see him look up and look around the room and suddenly he saw me and he nodded his head and started coming towards me. And people were trying to stop him on the way and shake his hand. But finally he came up to me and he said, Oh, Pastor Lee, he said, You're the head of the Seventh Avenue Church. I want to find out some information from you. He said, I want to know why it is that your young people, your pathfinders, your JMVs, how it is that they do so wonderful work. He said, I've been to the Cook Islands and to Samoa and to Fiji and to Vanuatu. He said, All these places, and I see the, the pathfinders. They outstrip all the other young people with their abilities, their skills. He said, I want you to tell me how it is. Well, now I knew what he was talking about because that very day, Wednesday, was the day he had been with our young people, with all the other young people of the Solomon Islands, at a rally in the, head of, in the headquarters of Honiara. And it was a very, very wet day. And the Lawson Tama is, is a field right in the heart of the city, and uh, it's on one side by the Anglican Cathedral and on the other side by the township. It's a great big football field to, today. But it was the field there open for occasions such as this. 
and it rained and it rained and it rained. They had given the Duke and the Queen huge umbrellas, you know, sun sun umbrellas uh, to sunshades to cover them over while it rained. But they moved about. Even their shoes were galoshes because there were so much water on the ground. There was about two inches of water all over the lawn. And uh, they continued through the groups and gave different attention to the different types of activities that the young people went through. They're marching, they're not tying, they're swings, uh, they're flying foxes. And the last program on the day was for all the young youth groups to come together and they had to perform one act. And it was to light a fire, no matches, and to boil a billy. And the one that had the water boiling first was the winner. Well, when the Duke got up and had his gun ready to shoot to start us off, our young people got together and I could see them all standing there and their uniforms wet to the skin, but they were ready. And as soon as the gun went off, they milled around in a circle and I noticed that two went inside the circle while the others had their hats over the top, in other words, making a tent. And I watched in closely between the youth that were standing around and these two inside there pulled out a plastic bag out of their hand, out of their pocket, and they opened it up a little bit and I could see that they had some very fine tinder there which was thoroughly dry and some little tiny sticks. And then they had a big stick Another another stick. They were the hardwood and the softwood sticks which were to light the fire because you weren't allowed matches. I thought, oh, they're prepared. And the others were all getting together and some were trying to strike matches and some were trying to rub sticks but we were thoroughly wet. And our young people got there and they made a, 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 a veranda, as it were, with their hats and their, their shirts over the top of these two that were down on the ground rubbing the sticks together. And after a while, they were rubbing, 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 and the smoke began to come up. And I could see a spark and then they began to blow the spark. And the others were still trying to get the water off their sticks and so forth. There was no effect happening anywhere else except with our pathfinders. Finally... The little f- pieces of brush were starting to flame and they got it together and they put more sticks about it and after a while they had a big sh- fire going, they put their billy on it and the billy boiled. They were the only ones that had the water boiling because they were the only ones that had a fire. And as a result of that, the Duke of Edinburgh was so impressed. He said, everywhere I go, these JMVs, these pathfinders, they do such a tremendous job. Tell me, Pastor Lee, tell me, what is it that makes them so successful? Or I said, they follow the pr- instruction of the Lord. The Lord says, if you obey him and do it his way, he says, you'll be the head and not the tail. He said, well, that's true. That's so very true. What I want you to do, he said, I want you to appoint a Seventh-day Adventist youth leader to become the representative of the Edinburgh Awards for the Solomon Islands. Well, that's a tremendous privilege because he was the Duke of Edinburgh and he was offering us, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the right to be his representative in the South Pacific, in the Solomon Islands. So we look around... And I could see that the best man there was William Patavaki. William Patavaki was our youth leader. He was responsible for the ability of these young people and how skillful they were. William Patavaki was made the Edinburgh Award Chief of the Solomon Islands. Now, his wife was Katarungaso's daughter. Katarungaso was a famous missionary of many years, and he, she was married to William Patavaki, and she was the support behind William in his great efforts with the youth of the Solomons. So no matter where we are, whether we're in the islands or in the capital cities of our continent or in parts of the earth, doesn't matter where we are, if we put the Lord first, he said, you'll become great, you'll be the head, not the tail.
Hey boys and girls, Safe Lee here to read you another portion of the book, Ellen, The Girl with Two Angels, written by Mabel R. Miller. Finally, her eyes adjusted to the dim light and she smiled at her mother and friends. Ellen, Mother Harmon asked, can you tell us anything that Jesus showed you just now? I'll try, Ellen said, for there are no words on earth good enough to describe the glorious things I've seen. She eagerly told them all about the things Jesus had shown her. Whenever God gave Ellen a vision, he controlled her body as well as her mind. One time, in front of an audience, God gave Ellen a vision. As before, she forgot all about the people in front of her. She just stood there with her hands folded. Two men in the group didn't believe in Ellen's vision. They started making fun of her. Go up and try to pull her hands apart, someone else called out. So they went up onto the stage to try, but as hard as they pulled, they could not move her hands apart. Maybe you could move her fingers, another person suggested. Once again, the two men tried, but they could not even move one finger. Ellen was still in her vision. She raised up both her arms and slowly waved them. Try to stop her arms from moving, others suggested to the two men. Hold them still. Each man grabbed one of Ellen's small wrists. With their powerful arms, they could not keep her arms from moving. When the vision ended, Ellen did not know what had happened, but her wrists where the men had grabbed were not even a little sore. Chapter 10. Every Drop of Water in the Ocean One afternoon, the Lord spoke to her, Ellen, I need you to be in Portsmouth, New Hampshire tomorrow. Yes, Lord, she said. I meant it when I promised to go anywhere and do anything for you. Then she remembered he'd said tomorrow. Tomorrow, Lord? It's 60 miles to Portsmouth and I don't have any money to buy train tickets for Sarah and myself. Then she remembered to trust him. But I know you'll work it out, Lord, so I'll leave it to you. I'm thankful Sarah is always willing to leave her work and go with me. One more thing, Lord. I'll know you'll give me the strength and a loud enough voice to speak your messages. The next morning, Ellen and Sarah packed clothes for their trip. Sarah wondered how they'd pay for their train tickets. Don't you worry about that, Ellen said. God has it all figured out. Just then, they heard a noise outside and saw a strange man driving a wagon right up to their gate. He rushed to the open door. I've been impressed that someone here needs money. Is that right? he asked, all out of breath. Ellen told him about their trip. The man reached into his pocket and gave them enough money to cover all their expenses. Come, get into my wagon and I'll take you to the station. As they rode, he told them he'd come 12 miles to bring them the money. My horse raced all the way, he added. I couldn't hold them back. Ellen glanced at the horse and saw it was covered with sweat. When they reached the station, the man helped the two girls from the wagon into the train. Thank you, sir. God bless you, was all they had time to say before the train jerked to a start. As the girls sat comfortably in the train, they talked about how God cared for every single thing. All we have to do is relax and let God take charge, Ellen said. He knows better than anyone. After Ellen's 18th birthday, she heard about an Adventist family living on an island. These people felt disappointed and discouraged because Jesus hadn't come. I want to visit them and tell them God loves them, Ellen said. Today, Mr Gurney, who was visiting the Harmons, offered to borrow a sailboat from a friend and take Ellen there. He did that very same day, Sarah went also. The blue sky, the deeper blue water and the smooth, peaceful ocean made Ellen feel calm and happy.
After a while, the sun sank behind the ocean, turning the sky and water many different shades of pink. But a little later, black clouds hurried across the sky until they covered it. Then lightning began to flash and thunder roared into their ears. Soon the waves grew huge and wild. Rain poured into the boat too and it rolled from side to side. Ellen and the others were soon soaked. Are we going to sink? Ellen cried. Mr Gurney shook his head. I can't hear you, he yelled into the wind. I can't control the boat in this wind. I don't know where we are. Ellen felt terrified. No one knew they'd be sailing that day, so no one would be looking for them to help them. God, help us, she finally screamed. No one knows where we are. Send us help, Father. The wind snatched the words from her mouth almost before she screamed them. Mr Gurney couldn't hear her, but God could. Right there in that sailboat with the lightning flashing, thunder roaring and rain pouring, he sent Ellen a vision. Suddenly, Ellen didn't hear the storm anymore. All she heard was the quiet voice of Jesus. Ellen, he said, don't be so frightened. Trust me, Ellen, I won't let anything happen to you. I'd dry up every drop of water in the ocean before I'd let harm come to you. Why, Ellen screamed into the wind. Why, he repeated, because your work for me has just begun. Ellen didn't hear him anymore, and the short vision ended. She heard the storm roaring over her again and felt the pouring rain, but all her fear had vanished. She hurried to tell Mr Gurney that they'd be safe. We certainly have been blessed today, Mrs. Tammy. God is showing us the very best of his frozen chosen. Oh, the snowflakes are falling on my nose. I I wonder if I can catch any on my tongue. It sure is fun to try. Did you know, Mrs. Tammy, that no two snowflakes are alike? But there are so many of them, Ranger Dan. Surely some of them would have to be the same. Now, Mrs. Tammy, you're underestimating our God. Sorry, Ranger Dan, you're right. Our God can do anything. Each snowflake is made out of tiny ice crystals that join together to form a snowflake. And none of them ever join up in the same way. God made each one of us different too, Ranger Dan. No two people are exactly the same. That's right, Mrs Tammy. God made snowflake like you. Oh, no, no, no. Well, do you look like me? I don't think so. God made us all different. We're one of a kind. We're different in front and we're we're different different behind. When a snowflake falls from the sky, no two are the same. And here is why. God can do anything, make the world just so, and design each flake that falls on the snow. So do I look like you? Oh, no, no, no. Well, do you look like me? I don't think so. God made us all different. We're one of a kind. We're different in front and we're different behind. Nothing is too hard for our God to do. Make snowflakes different. And people too. Our God's so great. We know it's true and that is why he could make 
make you you so do i look like you oh no 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 do you look like me i don't think so god made us all different we're one of a kind we're different in front and we're different behind and you're so wonderful and so amazing snow marvelous and snow cute and boys, Auntie Nat here. It's so good that you've come back to join me in reading the Bible. I hope you know now to get your Bibles ready. I'm reading from the New King James Version. And today we're going to start in a new book of the Gospels or the new book in the New Testament. We're going to read from John. Now, boys and girls, we read last week the account of Jesus in the wilderness praying and fasting for 40 days and the temptation of Satan. Our reading today starts when Jesus returns from the wilderness. Let's begin in John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I come baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So boys and girls, John here is confirming the event of Jesus' baptism. Let's continue to read in verse 35. Again the next day John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. So boys and girls, this is the second time only in a few days that John the Baptist has heralded the coming of the Messiah. Let's continue in 37. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated teacher... Where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. Now these two men were fishermen and had been influenced by the power of the Holy Spirit to go and listen to the preaching of John the Baptist. But they now recognised in Jesus that he was the Messiah and they wanted to sit at Jesus' feet and learn from him. These two men were Jesus' first two disciples. Let's read verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah, and you shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. 
So one of these men was a man named Andrew. The text we just read tells us that Andrew was so excited about meeting and talking with Jesus that he ran off and found his brother Simon, who was known as Simon Peter. Simon had also been listening to the preaching of John the Baptist and his heart had been stirred. He followed his brother Andrew to go and meet Jesus. By Jesus referring to Simon Peter as a stone, he is prophesying of the future history of Simon Peter's ministry. We are told that the other man with Andrew was John, who is the writer of this gospel. Let's continue in verse 43. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So no doubt Philip being from the same area as Andrew and Peter, Philip had too gone out and heard John the Baptist and heard about the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. Let's look at verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Wow, so Philip in his excitement went and found Nathanael. Now Nathanael had also been listening to John the Baptist preach and had been there on the occasion that John the Baptist had pointed to Jesus and called him the Lamb of God. Philip knew his friend Nathanael, who was also known as Bartholomew, was praying and searching the scriptures about all the things he had been witnessing. But Nathanael knew Jesus was from Nazareth and knew it was not a good place, and he questioned, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Let's see how God works this out. Let's read in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Wow. So Jesus knew Nathanael's heart. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus had known that Nathanael had been praying under the fig tree, trying to work out all those events in his mind, and was praying to God for guidance. Jesus answered his prayer, and that was enough for Nathanael. He acknowledged Jesus in verse 49 as the Son of God. Do you know, boys and girls, like Nathanael, who was praying and studying the Scriptures for answers, we too need to pray and study our Bibles, and the Holy Spirit will guide us into truth. The calling of Jesus' first disciples is also a witness for us. John the Baptist directed two of his disciples to Christ. One of them, Andrew, told his brother Simon Peter. Then Philip told his friend Nathaniel. They were so excited when they met Jesus that they had to go tell someone else. They just couldn't keep it to themselves. Do we tell others about Jesus or do we keep it to ourselves? It's something to think about.
Hello boys and girls, it's Dr. John here with another story by Eric B. Hare from his Jungle Stories book. And I remember Eric B. Hare and I remember him playing the trumpet. He loved to play in the brass band and this story is how he brought a brass band to Burma. It is called Blowing the Burma Brass Band. It was at Paketi on our second visit among the timid hill people that the idea was born. On this trip, we had pushed farther along the hills and had actually crossed the border into Siam, which we now call Thailand. And we had preached the gospel to a village of Siamese in our Karen language. Paketi made such a poor appearance as a village that the boys rather questioned whether it would be worthwhile to hold a meeting there. But I said, yes, boys, we'll take them all as they come. So we put up the sheet for the screen and the pictures, and just as the sun was setting, lit the lamp and started the music. Brother Melendi, our union secretary, was with us on that trip and had made three cornets. Now, a cornet is like a small trumpet. It worked like magic, and out of those half-tumbled-down bamboo huts came people, aunties and uncles, fathers and mothers, boys and girls, everyone that lived there. They simply had to come to our meeting. And as the boys saw this wonderful response, they said, Oh, Tara, wouldn't it be lovely if we all had cornets? I answered quickly enough, it surely would, boys, but the words made me pause to think. And then a big idea came. Boys, I said, next year I go home to Australia on a holiday and I'll see if I can bring back at least six cornets. Next year found us in Australia. And I found myself telling the story of the boys and the cornets to eager people. And do you know, I found the people there just as big-hearted and warm-hearted as they are anywhere. And before long, I received a trumpet from here, a bass from over there, and a drum from somewhere else, and a check through the mail. And by the time my holiday was finished, I had 23 brass instruments packed away in the boxes. Why? If we'd been in Australia for two years, we would have had enough instruments for three brass bands. But wait a moment. Not quite so fast. I'll tell you a secret. You've got to have something more than brass instruments to have a brass band. If you don't believe me, you should have been there the day we had our first band practice. I can never forget it. It was awful. Those poor dear boys had come to look at those boxes every day for a week. It seemed as if those boxes never would be opened, but at last the boys were chosen and the first practice was announced. They were all there. And the more they all helped to open those boxes, the harder it seemed for those lids to come off. At last, one board was off. I put my hand in and pulled out an E-flat bass. That's like a big tuba. Here you are, I said to one of the boys, take the paper off and see what you can do with it. Now, the only instrument he had ever seen before was a cornet. 
So he put this big bass into a cornet position with the bell, that's the open part at the end, straight out and the curly part near his shoulder, but he couldn't find a place to blow. So he turned it around and blew into the bell. That wasn't working. So he came to me and complained, Thar, I can't find the beginning of this thing. In a minute, I had found the mouthpiece and showing him how to place his lips, put him over in a corner, and soon he was making some terrible noises. The next instrument to come out was a cornet, and calling Bordy, I said, Here you are, Bordy. See what you can do with this. He did what he had seen me do a thousand times, put it to his lips and wriggled his fingers till his fingers were tired, but it wouldn't make a noise for him. And coming to me quite disgustedly, he said, Thara, this thing won't sing for me. Well, I showed him how to place his lips and in a minute was making some horrible noises in another corner. Multiply this noise by 20 and you'll know why Mrs. Hare had to flee from the house and take refuge in the jungle to save her nerves and why I had to go to bed that afternoon with a fever. Oh, it was terrible. As I lay there on my bed, I wished that this was all a nightmare, that soon I would wake up and find that I had never been to Australia and there was no such thing as a brass band in Burma that I had never promised the boys to bring them back some corners, but it was no use. Those noises downstairs brought me back to life and I realised that I had a tremendous problem on my hands. On the third day, we tried to tune up, but it was impossible. Those poor boys couldn't blow the same note twice. All their spare time they put in on those instruments, they blew till their clothes were wet with sweat and their faces were as red as lobsters. But it was no use. But do you know just why they wanted to blow the band? It was so that they could preach the gospel better. And in their prayers, those lads pled, Oh, Lord, help us to blow the band. Help us to blow the band. And he did. It sounds more like fiction than truth, but exactly 30 days after unpacking those instruments, after just one month's blowing, we lined up in a beautiful shining ring and we held our first open-air meeting at Laka. We played only five songs from the band's books and Abide With Me, but it was the start and it completely changed our preaching in the jungles. I have seen the day when we would visit every house in the village and invite people to come to a meeting and perhaps we would get 20. But with the band, we don't have to visit first. We go to the centre of the village, play a tune or two, and every man, woman and child is on the spot. Another tune and they are under the influence of the beautiful music and remain quiet all through the meeting. We have set apart Sunday afternoons for our village meetings near the mission. And then in vacation time, we take tours further afield. Think of the fact that it is in training the boys. If we come to a Burmese village, we can preach in Burmese. If we come to a Tangthu village, one of the boys can speak in Tangthu. It is the same with Po Karen and Swa Karen villages. We are able to take every village just as it comes. And I know 
that when the rewards are given out in heaven, there are going to be many bright stars in the crowns of the boys that blew the band. Special thanks go to Pacific Press for giving 3ABN Australia Radio permission to read on air a selection from Jungle Stories, written by Eric B. Hare, and Ellen, the Girl with Two Angels, written by Mabel R. Miller. Also, thanks goes to Stanborough Press for giving 3ABN Australia Radio permission to read a selection of stories from the set of books called Uncle Arthur's Best Bedtime Stories. And thanks to Remnant Publications for permission to read the Remnant Young Scholar Study Bible on air. We would also like to thank Daniel and Tammy Cinzio for allowing us to play their CD, Frozen Chosen, on air. For any other information about the Children's Story Hour, you can contact us at radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au.
Thank you for looking after me and keeping me safe. Please forgive me for the things I've done wrong today and help me to listen to you. And I obey mum and dad and help me to be kind to others always. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Auntie Cecily sang two songs, When We All Get to Heaven and Jesus, Tender Shepherd, Hear Me. Well, boys and girls, we have come to the end of the Children's Story Hour. On behalf of Auntie Sue, I would like to say goodbye, God bless you, and we'll see you again next week for another episode of the Children's Story Hour. Children's Story Hour